This week on Reliving the Extreme, no original uh, content this week. I'm Nate Maxson, your host. We are taking a week off from doing first-run stuff. Uh, we will be back with that next week. But I wanted to give you something you can enjoy anyway. Um, if you don't know, we have another podcast here on the network called the We Can't Wrestle Podcast. And recently, the We Can't Wrestle Podcast had its 200th episode. And I was proud to have Bob Smith, the former managing editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and now host of his own podcast, The Outdated Wrestling Hour, on the show for a conversation. And I wanted to present that interview to listeners of Reliving the Extreme that might not listen to the We Can't Wrestle podcast just because of a couple of things. First, we do talk about wrestling history here a lot on the show. I know it's an ECW-centric show, but we talk about a lot of other wrestling history too, so it was cool to talk to Bob about that. But also, Bob does have a connection to ECW. As in the original days of ECW, when it was still Eastern Championship Wrestling, Todd Gordon was getting things off the ground, they're still doing shows in nightclubs and bars, Bob actually did play-by-play for some of the original ECW television. So there is an ECW tie-in there, but I also just wanted to share it with you because if you don't listen to the We Can't Wrestle podcast, you would not have heard this great conversation I had with Bob Smith. So that being said, let's go into that, my conversation from the 200th episode of the We Can't Wrestle podcast with the man who created the PWI 500, the former managing editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Mr. Bob Smith. All right, listeners, it is my pleasure to welcome to the, as part of the 200th episode of the We Can't Wrestle podcast this week, I am joined by, um, dare I say, and, and I'll get into it deeper, but Dare, you know, dare. if you if if you if you if you if you could imagine having your favorite like, comic book writer or somebody from your teen years on your own podcast, this is what I'm dealing with here because I'm welcoming the former managing ed- editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and the host of his own podcast, The Outdated Wrestling Hour. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Bob Smith. I can't believe I made the 200th episode. <laughs> you know, I was looking at the at your at your episode count. You know, because like I was telling you before you hit the record button, I've been binging on your show because I know I was going to be on this show. Right, right. And and, it, and it's like, uh, no way I make the 200th. But I am honored to be here at such a milestone podcast. I, I appreciate it. I really I do. Know, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the 200th, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. But yeah, it's a, it's a labor of love as a wrestling fan. And that's kind of what I was alluding to when I started here was as a wrestling fan, I just have to tell you, and we'll get, obviously we'll get into some questions and stuff, but. I have in my hands right here a copy of the very first ever Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Oh, my gosh. And I want to tell you, Bob, it came out in 91. So 91, I I was born in 78, so I'd have been 13. Mm -hmm. And for me, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine in the the early to mid-90s was little me's Bible. Like I, I religiously, you know, grandma took me to the candy store. I wouldn't want the candy. I don't want to buy the candy. I want to buy the wrestling magazine and I want pro wrestling illustrated and the 500. I swear. I bet I read this thing. I bet I read this thing through a hundred times because I grew up in Midwest in Ohio, the Toledo area. And we got, um, we got WWF, you know, we got WCW obviously on TBS, but there was no really saw some of the bruiser stuff the you know, the, or the, the bruiser bedlam stuff, but this was, this magazine was my portal to the wrestling world at that time that I had not, didn't get to experience. And it was just, I soaked it up and I got to say, 
I can't, I can't, and I'm not even, I'm not even blowing smoke here. I can't tell you how much I, as a wrestling fan, appreciate the work you put into that. Oh, thank you very much. Um, you know, when I got the job with them in 88, I think it was 88 that I got hired. I was just like you as a kid, man. I, I had a 50 cent allowance. And I remember, I remember specifically in at least two or three occasions spending all the 50 cents on wrestling world or I'm a little older than you are. But inside wrestling, you know, all the magazines were out at that point. Mm. And it came at a time when there was no wrestling on my local TV. Wrestling had left my area. I'm from the Albany, New York area originally. So it's like there it was no wrestling on. But I was hooked on it. So I was like, well, what do I do? So I started <laughs> reading the wrestling magazines, which back then really was the way that wrestling fans got their information. There's no question about that up until mm -hmm. probably about – 1995, 96, it was still a vital way to get news out because it was still ter territories back then. Mm -hmm. And even in the cable world, you couldn't see everything. But the next best thing was to read about it in the magazine. So I, I realized that when I got the job. I like when I, I remember when I got hired, I was like, I don't believe this. You know, I, I was I was so thrilled. And um, Mike Tyson got me the job with them. No kidding. And, yeah, well, not spiritually, but not really. Here, here's why. I, I worked for a newspaper in Catskill, New York, where he used to train when he was just a tadpole, like 19, 20, 21 years old. And uh, I had won a journalism award, a big one, for an interview I did with him. Mm -hmm. And what better resume fodder for a company that does wrestling and boxing magazines than an award-winning interview with the most famous boxer in the world? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> So I, that was part of it, but I, I was hired on the wrestling end and, uh, that's dream job. What can I tell you? It really was not to say I didn't work my ass off once I got in there because mm -hmm. it really was a lot of work. They put out a lot of product. I mean, I, I, as you probably have heard on other podcasts, I did the first two PWI 500s all by myself. And, but I, I think they gave me that job and agreed to let me do it because I had the, the knowledge base to do it. And right. that's kind of a compliment to me. I, I really think of every staffer that was there. I was the only one that could have done it at that point. It's, it's I, for some reason it's, I absorbed everything about every territory. I watched tapes like crazy, had, had a background of watching every wrestling show I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. So I was the right guy because you know, not everybody, not, not everybody in the staff was like that. And they, a couple of staffers kind of like wrestling, but they weren't into it. Like I was, mm -hmm. So I, I think I was the right guy to do the job. And, and, and you know, and, and that's, that's a, that's a kindred spirit wrestling fan thing too. Cause I've always, I've, I've been, I'm the same way, you know, as I grew up, I could watch what my mother was willing to pay for or whatever on cable and et cetera, et cetera. And then as, as I got older and I got access to tapes and I got access, then the internet comes along and YouTube comes along. And then it's like this whole new world opens up, you know, now I've watched, I've watched all of mid Atlantic. I've watched Memphis, which is the greatest wrestling territory ever. And I've watched I, Georgia and yeah, it's just once you, if you're a real wrestling fan, once you open that can, even the bad stuff, anything you can get your hands on, you're going to watch it. Right. Well, there was, you know, there's the thing when I was a fan, there was no bad stuff back then. Right. I really didn't feel that way. I, you know, mm -hmm. from the smallest federation to the WWF, I thought it was all good at, at at many points, nothing insulted my intelligence back then. And, and I, and I, I agree. I, I'm the same way. Like you said, I'm, I think I'm like, maybe fan wise, I'm maybe that, that actually, that was my first question I have for you. So let's just do that. What, what, what was your first 
what was your first in introduction to the world wacky world of professional wrestling and what made you a fan? Okay. I am from the Albany, New York area, and we had a, three TV stations to choose from pre-cable. Yes, I am pre-cable, folks. <laughs> I was around before we used to have to put antennas on our garages and stuff like that, which we did. And we had channels 6, 10, and 13, and channel 6 was WRGB from Schenectady, New York, a famous wrestling station in terms of history because they used to broadcast live matches from that TV station in the Ooh. 40s and 50s. I didn't know that. Uh, I think his name is Brett Williams on Facebook, who does an incredible job uh, uncovering stuff from the Northeast uh, of New York State, um, publishes these things. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that till like three weeks ago. So the guy, hats off to you, buddy, because you're doing a great job. I, in 1969 or 1970, this is how old I am, okay? A little tadpole Bob sits in front of the TV, and I discover a show called Championship Wrestling with Johnny Powers, which was Pedro Martinez's old NWF federation from Buffalo. They used to promote Buffalo, Cleveland, Utica, New York, and Albany which I thought was a long way for them to travel, but they did. And they had an incredible roster. I mean, Johnny Powers, Ernie Ladd, the Mongols, George Crybaby Cannon, uh, Eric the Red, Kurt Von Hess, Abdullah the Butcher after a while. I mean, just people you wouldn't expect for a federation that did two states, right? So I started watching this thing, and I was hooked. Oh, Dick the Bulldog Brower, too, who remains one of my all-time favorites. So I start watching the show, and I'm like so hooked on it. One time, somebody slammed Powers in the head with the belt. It's the first time I ever saw a wrestler bleed. Jack Arnold was the host. He's going, that's not fake blood, ladies and gentlemen. How could you expect to get hit over the head with a belt and not bleed? You know, it was just, mm -hmm. it was it was a studio show, by the way. Their show was a studio show similar to Memphis or Pittsburgh. So I'm, I'm hooked on this thing. And then psh, it goes off. Hmm. Like I told you, there was no wrestling. I think it was on for a year, year and a half. I guess they weren't drawing the crowds in the Albany area, and they promoted all over upstate New York, but I guess they decided it wasn't worth the trips. Actually, they only lasted until 74 anyway, I think. So anyway, to make a long story short, I'm buying wrestling magazines. There's nothing going on until late 73, early 73, and here comes the WWF on the same station at the same time. Goal. I, it was back, and it was bigger. You know, and who's and the first wrestler that I saw on that show? Bulldog Brow, the same guy I'd seen. Hey, there you go. <laughs> well, that must mean Bulldog Brow is the biggest star in the world. Remember, I'm a little kid at this point because he's all over all these shows. But then, you know, uh, I think the, the tag team champs were champ. The t um, Pedro was the champion at that point. So this must have been 72, 73. Oh, no, it was 72 because the tag team champions were Sonny King and Chief J. Strongbow. See, yeah. I still got it. You know, I can still remember this as a Terrica from Ben. Anyway, I never missed it. And as I moved into my high school years, I had a friend with a car. Uh, my best friend in high school, Rick Stickles, with his beat up beige Volkswagen. We'd go to Albany to see at the Washington Avenue Armory all the local cards that were there. And it was WWF. You know, it was a superstar Billy Graham and Maivia and Strongbow and Ben Rashke and all the stars you can name from uh, in the East Coast. So. I was hooked. Ten years later, after that, I was working for PWI. It, it helped that I got a job with my hometown newspaper, 
um, as sports editor and did the work with Tyson and stuff like that. But I had that huge knowledge base of all that stuff from upstate New York. And I read wrestling magazines voraciously, even as an adult, because it was still the way to, you know, I didn't know who Meltzer was until I joined PWI, to be honest with you. So, and that was 88 and he had been around for years by that point. So, so basically I'm just like everybody else. I was just a voracious fan who got lucky. Was the, was the TV show that you got, the WWWF TV show, would that be the stuff that was uh, filmed in Allentown or Hamburg? We got both of them. Okay. We got, um, because we had cable came in soon afterwards. So Channel 9 in New York had, I don't know which had which, but um, we had both All-Star Wrestling and Championship Wrestling from WOR and WRGB. And then a third station picked up one of the other shows a week later. Like they would show what Channel 9 had on a week later. I don't know why, but that's the way they did it. Mm-hmm. You continue to promote at um, that armory until the. I think it got really popular. And they moved to I think the Glens Falls Civic Center, which was a small hockey arena. And then after the expansion, they just exploded. And they, you know, Summer SummerSlam '92 was done at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, which is brand new at that point, and that was a full size twenty thousand seat venue. So Albany has quite a history when it comes to pro wrestling, and I was there for a lot of it. Um, yeah, I think I think just by judging by what you were saying, I think I, I probably came along in the wrestling ether about a decade after you because my right. first my first memory, my first memory is um, and I just remember it distinctly. And when I met Hulk Hogan, I told him about it. And it's funny story, but it was I remember seeing. It was right before Hulk Hogan became the champion. So it was probably like late 83 or something. He had just come back to the WWF and he and Bob Backlund actually teamed up against, I think it was Mr. Fuji and Tiger uh, or uh, Tiger Chung Lee. And I just vividly remember the victory sports banner in the background. And, and when I told Hulk Hogan about that, he goes, brother, I don't even remember that. So, um, yeah, but that's my my first memory was just right before the cusp of Hulkamania. So, Speaking of Hulkamania, too, um, I moved into Ulster County after a while, after living in Greene County, which is a bigger county. And they moved their TV tapings sometime in the 80s to the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie, which was not far from where I live. So I started attending the, uh, you know, the TV tapings. I, I attended probably six of those, six or seven of them, and uh, it was quite a hoot. You know, like I'd be sitting, I'd be sitting there in the upper, upper area. You know, not not at ringside, but in the bleachers part. It was an arena, so I had seating. And here comes Pat Patterson eating a bag of potato chips, just walking up the, the aisles as if he's just you know at home there, and. Uh, it was, it was a trip because it was a, a medium-sized arena, if you remember those tapings. Remember the mm-hmm. famous Andre haircut? Yes, yes. That was, that was the Mid-Heads Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. I think in my brain, in my brain, what sticks out to me most, just probably because, again, when you're a fan, but I remember all the Monday Night Raws from that arena. So that arena definitely has, has a place in my brain as far as a wrestling venue goes. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it wasn't that much longer that I actually was working in the business, which just freaks me out to this day, you know, because I went from hyperactive fan to someone who had the keys to the car, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. just started to learn all the secrets because I didn't know. I wasn't anything near an insider when I started, you know, but 
once you spent six months there, you knew just about everything. You know, and, and it, it, that was you know, actually Bill my Peters and Stu Sachs. They, these guys knew everything. I mean, Bill Apter to this day is a walking encyclopedia, and he was the conduit between most of the federations or organizations and the wrestlers themselves. Everybody knew Bill. Everybody liked Bill. So at the magazines, um, he would communicate all the stuff that he found out to us. And that's how we put the magazines together. To be honest, without Bill Apter, we would have been squat. Bill Apter was a giant in terms of who he knew, how to get information. He, he, he really was, he, he was it. I'll be honest with you. You know, he's on my show that comes out. Uh, I'm, well, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but as we speak tomorrow, he's going to be a guest on my show. And I, I you know, we talked about that. The fact that without after, um, I don't know what we, what we would have done. I don't know what they're doing now. I know that the magazine is still in print and new people have taken it over and stuff like that. But uh, back in those days, Bill would get the info. He'd parlay it to us. We'd, he'd hand us the photographs because we had a team of photographers all over the country and all over the world at times. And we would base our articles off the information he gave us. Totally invaluable. What a guy. And that's so the- if, anybody, if anybody complains to you that after didn't write this or this isn't, take it from me. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hype you. Um, Bill after was 75% of the success of that company. No question about it. Yeah, there's a reason they call them the aftermags. <laughs> you know, it's well, actually, you know, according to Bill, Meltzer gave it that name and people just picked up on it. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. That's what I, I think I've just always known there. them. I've I think he's always known there as that. Side in the observer. Well, the aftermags said that. Well, I think some people still call it the aftermags. Did power go out for a second? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, you, it was froze up for a second. Yeah, I saw that. We had the rolling pinwheel of death for one second there. <laughs> that's but okay. it came right back, so that's cool. But yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know Meltzer coined that phrase. The aftermath. Yeah, so. Meltzer definitely coined that phrase. Yeah. So my my next question, I guess, and it, it kind of parlays into what we were just talking about. Um, I know you said you were you were. Uh, a newspaper journalist. Mm-hmm. And then how did, I know you said the Mike Tyson interview was you, you, you kind of credit that, but was that, I guess what, what I'm saying is, were you looking for a job when PWI came to you or it, how, how did it, how did it all come to be for you to work there? This is, this is hilarious. <laughs> I was working. I had a new job working in a, uh, music magazine that's all i'll say because i wasn't there long enough to even say but it was a national music magazine and i just started there and i would still pick up the new york times every sunday just to see if you can imagine back then they had an entire section of classified ads for jobs it was part of the paper like 30 pages of it and three or four of them were all editorial work oh it was heavenly i you know you got to miss it you know but anyway (laughs) I see this little two-line ad. I, I swear this is the truth. Little two-line ad says editor slash writer wanted for sports entertainment mag. And I want sports entertainment. That's wrestling. Send resume, comma, clips to 
box something RBC and why I went, Oh, RBC Rockville center. That's, that's the after mags. So I knew who they were just, I, I could read it. And I sent in the Tyson clip and I sent in a few other things and I got the phone call. I was like, wow. And I went in for my interview and pretty much nailed it. I really did. I had a lot of knowledge and I, I know I aced the writing test they gave me and I talked about my, so I think they hired me as a wrestling boxing guy at first. Cause I wrote three or four boxing articles when I first started there. Okay. And, um, actually helped um, Bill do a, a photo session with Mike Dyson because I knew Mike. And so that way it, it just, you know, it cooled the ice and I, Bill could do whatever he wanted because he knew I was working, you know, Mike knew I was working with Bill and I had carte blanche because we were old friends. So to make a long story short, I fluked into it. It was just an, it's just an ad in a newspaper. And I don't know how many people they interviewed. I think somebody had just left and they hired two people, myself and a guy named Gersh Kuntzman, who went on to become a big time writer in New York City. Um, but I, I just I just totally fluked into it. It was it was awesome. What a feeling. I mean, the very magazines I used to walk to the candy store to buy, even as an adult, I was about to work for. You don't know what that felt like. It was like <sighs> lottery. You won the lottery. Yeah, I Not can't imagine how cool. <laughs> but in, in your mind, in your heart, it's like I couldn't have gotten luckier. Could not have gotten luckier. Um, and as, as you worked there, and, and, and of course, we already hit on the 500, but I'll ask a, another question about that in a minute. But as I, I guess it interests me as a kid that read the magazine, because, um, you know, we all know that um, there was some carte blanche with with the magazines as far as storylines and stuff goes as far as you know with with storylines within the magazines that weren't necessarily playing out on television or or what have you did you guys have when you worked there did you have much access to the actual wrestlers everywhere but wwf okay wwf had started their own magazine and threw out all the magazines from ringside didn't allow the passes anymore and even at the big arenas, they were kind of strict to kind of watching people to see if they weren't shooting commercially because they wanted entire access for their own house magazine and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which leads to another funny story. Um, that, let me just do this while I'm thinking about it. We used to sneak into Madison Square Garden with seat, uh, 300 level seats with our long lenses stuffed in the sandwich, Subway sandwich bags. Right, you make make people think we bring this subway sandwich in instead right. of yeah, and we would just shoot, shoot, hide the camera, shoot, shoot, hide the camera, shoot, shoot. So we kept shooting at WWE events. If you notice during that period between '88 and about '94, there were always ring ropes in the pictures because we were shooting from, mm-hmm. you know, not ringside but up, shooting down, and you couldn't avoid having. But I think we did a hell of a job considering what we had to deal with. And uh, so that was part of the problem back then. Uh, back to your original question, though, which was, um, oh, yeah, our storylines. I was one of the writers who kind of stuck to what the, what the organizations were doing because I did a lot of indie writing. I, I actually preferred doing USWA, world class, continental, whatever, you know, 
Calgary, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mainly because how many times can you do a Hulk? We were doing Hulk Hogan so much, so much that I, I, I tired of it. And I wanted to do the other stuff. So they let me, it was no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, in terms of, I remember one time I got a little heat from WCW slash NWA for an article I did about the poor horsemen and how Sid was getting upset with them, but not showing it, which was total. I got a little heat for uh, overstepping my bounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's the one time personally I can recall a little bit of flack. Um, it was worse in the old days when Bill Apter, <laughs> Bill Apter or somebody, Stanley Weston, back when Bruno was champion, did an article about Bruno fighting the Nazis or something like that. And Bill, Bill got a lot of heat from Bruno Sammartino himself. He said, that's too much. He said, nothing like that ever happened. Please. It's, I had enough trouble in real life in that situation. And there were other stuff that, you know, during the course of the history of those magazines, the London magazines, you know, apartment house wrestling and, you know, stuff that, you know, some wrestlers didn't really cotton to being on the cover of a magazine where next to it was two girls in bikinis, you know, pretending to fight each other, you know. So there was that that caused a little controversy, too, back in the day. But it was before my time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, was- you know, the, the, the silly stuff, the um, the Matt Brock, the Liz Hunter, the um, the heel writers we had eddie elner when i was there preceded by the great dan shaka who was one hell of a writer i mean he just he just wrote like a like a tv script writer he was he was excellent so you know once in a while somebody would write something about somebody that was a little inflammatory we'd hear about it but you know again it was the era where we were working hand in hand with the promoters and also um some people really needed or liked the publicity they didn't care what it was so you took the good with the bad i guess yeah, I and I, I had um, a while of that. I don't know some some episodes back. I actually had Brian Solomon on the show, and he was discussing you know his time at WWE magazine and stuff. And that's why I wanted to ask you because I know the to to what he was discussing with me. WWE has always been in and out as to how much access they're going to give. You know, sometimes we're okay with the other magazines. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're good with the wrestling press. Sometimes we're not. So I just wasn't sure at your time, during your time there, what the, what the access to them was. So, no, it depends on how business was too. I'll tell you something. Um, When they had the debut of raw at the Hammerstein ballroom in New York city, we got caught blanche again. The ratings had been down. They they were reduced to running that small venue for their TV again, because things were really hurting for a while. And they invited us. I remember about five of us went to the debut show hmm. with passes, which we had never had before, including after who hadn't been in ringside in years. So um, things change. You know how business is. If they need you, they come calling. If they yeah. think they're too big for you, they'll amscray. You know, it's it's like just it's just the way it is. It's, you know, wrestling has always been such a close shop anyway that anybody who gets a ringside pass is lucky. You know, because especially me, it was still kayfabe into the mid nineties, no question about it. I remember, I remember visiting Memphis once, and I had to use the men's room backstage at the Channel Five show. And I walked into this room. I asked somebody, "Where's the men's room?" They pointed to the room. So I walk into the room, this big room with the men's room as part of the room. But I didn't know that Eddie Marlin uh, 
Jerry Jarrett and Eric Embry were working the book as I walked in. So when I walked in, even though they knew who I was and why I was there, they, they gave me the saucer eyes because it's like, oh, gosh, she's going to hear this. So it was definitely still kayfabe crazy back then, you know? That's a name, Eric Embry. What a fucking talent that doesn't get the credit he deserves. But um, he's my favorite. I call it. I don't know what the term is. He's my favorite crybaby heel. That's what I call it, crybaby heel. Mm-hmm. But he, he's my favorite of all time in that, that in that category. What, what he was putting down in Memphis, he was slightly crazy, slightly sane, a sl- slightly a genius. I'm talking on camera. Mm-hmm. Slightly a lunatic. He was a little of all of it. You know, he, you couldn't describe what he was. He was not a big guy and certainly not a body beautiful, but he had an anti-charisma that really worked and he pulled it off. What he did in Memphis and Texas afterwards. Yes. And that, to be honest with you, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like my first, my first exposure to him again, because not, I've seen it all now, but my first exposure to him was actually when global was on ESPN. Right. And that was the first time I ever saw him. So, yeah. And that was a great angle. I mean, even though you had Phil Hickerson playing a giant Japanese guy, which is beyond incredible, but nobody knew it. Nobody complained. The fans never said, boo, you're, we know who you are. So, and I think part of that was because Hickerson was in Texas as opposed to Memphis. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know. I, I don't think he looked remotely Japanese, but that's, you know, Tojo Yamamoto was his manager, and I guess that one and one make two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a good program, and that may have been the last legit sellout that the Sport Authority ever had was when, you know, Eric beat Tojo to take o- to change it to the USWA instead of world class. And that may that was a legit sellout, and I think that was, may have been the last one. I'm probably totally wrong, but I have a feeling I'm not that far from being right either. Oh, I was going to say you're definitely not far off, if it, you know, no matter what. It's um, on one of the shows that uh, the other show that I do, the Reliving the, the Extreme Show, the ECW show. Um, we were just talking about the Sportatorium. Um, it, it, and the reason the reason we were is because Steve Austin, we're, we're on the episodes now where Steve Austin is coming into ECW and he talks about how he's been in the sportatorium, but compared to that, the ECW arena is a dump. And um, I got, I told, I was telling the guys, I actually, the company that I worked for back in 2002, we had a manager's conference in Dallas and I actually got to drive past the sportatorium. Obviously by that point, Nobody was doing anything with it. You can't go inside or anything, but it's just cool to know that I got to drive past it. And then I think they tore it down the next year, but yeah. um, it, it's cool to be able to say, I saw the sportatorium at least, you know, <laughs> from the outside looking in and it's all run down and everything by that point. But You know, that Memphis trip, I was going to make it two pronged. I was going to uh, fly into Memphis, do one show there and then drive to da- to uh, the sportatorium. I, I think Pedicino was still working it at that point. Um, it didn't work out. It would, it would have killed me, and it was just too far. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm glad I, I spent a week in Memphis instead because I, I learned so much and, and got to meet Sabu when he was a kid and Rob Van Dam when he was a kid and that whole crew there. And I saw two shows, and it's, I think that's my favorite experience of my years was spending a week in Memphis. It was worth it. Actually, that's funny that you said that because my next question was, um, 
What I was going to say, if you could give me just an example, one or two, I was going to say, what are your best and worst experiences working for the? That's a really good question. Best experiences was Memphis. I will say the PWI 500, even though it was a killer, it really was hard to put together. Oh, gosh. Pre-internet? Think about that. Yeah. Oh, and, and hey, we just rolled into my next question because my next question was, how the hell did you put that together? But yeah, so we got we got two answers. We got two questions here. That well, this is why I think it was the right guy on the staff to do the job, because I, I'm telling you, 75 percent was right out of my head. The other 25 percent I had to research like, you know, but we did keep records. We had a, a office record book of wrestler. It was just one line for each wrestler, but it said where they're from, the bio, the weight, the height. Year debuted, you know, the whole. So we had a, a tiny bio of each wrestler right there. And it said that Bill the Butcher debuted in 1955, which drove me. I would use that for some. Others were people that I knew and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it was hard work. You know what? The reason I consider it one of my favorite things is because of the impact it's had then to now. And I had no expectation that the wrestlers would end up taking it as seriously as they did even then. I remember Chris Candido seeing him somewhere and go, I went down 50 spots. Why did I go down 50 spots? And I went, holy smokes. I didn't anticipate this. And then a couple other guys who I won't even mention didn't end up on it because of a – we had a computer snafu one year uh, and knocked out a few guys from the letters G to H. So Terry Gordy didn't make it, and I think Owen Hart got left out. I didn't leave them out. The, the computer just bogged down or something, and they got vaporized. And I'll be damned if we didn't hear about that too. So, yeah, they took it serious. If you weren't on it, they didn't like it. If they were too low, they didn't like it. If they were way high, they loved it. You know, man, right from the start, you know. Now, other good memories. The friends I've never lost. Bill Apter, Craig Peters, Stu Sachs. I hope they feel the same way. Roy London, Andy Rodriguez, um, Al Bello, who works for Getty Images now. Um, the whole the whole team there, Rosenbaum. Later on, a guy named Chris Bernuka and Gersh Kunzman that I talked about. I, I felt friendly with all of them. The boxing staff, my gosh, Steve Farhood and Bobby Cassidy, who's still working in boxing. And Steve Farhood is working in Broadway boxing on SMY. And, you know, it's just they've all gone on to great things and um i was there for their formative years and uh, yeah, sat right next to steve Arhood, who's a boxing encyclopedia it was just i didn't know what i had when i had it i mean i really had a really good deal there my worst memories being scared to get being scared to death to write an article about nikita koloff's wife dying hmm. an article when his wife was terminally ill I don't know if his wife or his girlfriend. It's been so many years. I just don't remember. But the, the woman he was involved with, and she ended up passing away not long after the article came out. And it's the hardest thing to do because when you know you write for a somewhat exploitive wrestling magazine and you have to turn on and have to turn on your news hat and not like over exploit the situation. What's more important than life and death? I mean, come on. And Nikita turned out to be a great guy about it. And, and 
the young lady was just fantastic with her interview, and it's it turned out to be a fantastic article, unlike anything you'd usually read in a wrestling magazine. But it scared me. You know, it was hard. It was very hard to do. You know, I'm used to writing about, you know, Eric Embry cutting Eddie Marlin's hair after a match or something like that. This was the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was tough. But I wouldn't say it's one of the worst, but one of the hardest things I had to do. Worst experience was the day that Stanley Weston walked in and said, I'm selling the magazine to a company in rural Pennsylvania called Kappa Publishing to those crossword puzzle magazines. And I could not go with them. I had to leave. I had just bought property a year and a half before right down the road. I could walk to work. Boom. Cosmic screwing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't blame Stanley for selling. He was older and wanted to get out and he got a nice hunk of change for selling it. But by the same token, I was left out in the COLD. I, I could not say with me. I, I continued to freelance for, for them for about a year and a half, but it wasn't the same. And I left when I got an offer for triple the money for uh, wrestling's main event, which Sandy Krebs. Yeah, people. I wrote for other magazines through other companies. Um, and I was executive editor of WCW's second version of their magazine with Colin Bowman as the owner of that mag. And then Bill calls me after that and has me freelance for Wow. You remember Wow magazine? Yes, yes. yes. I actually have um, in my magazine collection. I have the entire run of that magazine. So. Wow, really? So my name's in a couple of them anyway. But in any event, um, so every time I got out of it, somebody called me. For about five years after I left PWI, I was still writing. Um, no, between you and me, the wall, nobody read WCW magazine. So nobody even knew I was there. You know, it was like, it was like and I'm not putting Collins magazine down, but all three versions, nobody read. I mean, it was like, and people forget London did, my company, PWI, did the first WCW magazine. And then Colin got the rights to it for a few years. And then some bright guy at WCW said, let's do it ourselves. And it lasted a handful of issues and it died. So like everything with WCW, it died, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah. So the, the tough thing for me was having to leave. I didn't want to leave. I didn't, I wasn't planning on it. I obviously thought I was part of the scenery because I bought property right near where the, you know, right where the magazine was. But uh, so then I had to go into the real world and that wasn't easy. Well, I stayed in publishing all those years. In fact, I was in publishing straight through April of 2021, which is amazing. That's a, that's a long run. The last 17 years I spent doing an entertainment magazine in Long Island. So it's, it's like, I never stopped doing publishing. So, you know, it's been worth it, but I always look back to my favorite job. You know, what can I tell you? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you are ever, I know you said you were listening to some episodes of the show. If you ever have, um, downtime, some time on your hands, just so you know. I don't know if I told you uh, before, but there is actually, I believe it's a nine or ten episode run of this this show where we literally went through the entire first PWI 500. Every star, every bio. I did not know that. 500 to one, just, you know, yeah. And What did it, it you was, guys talking about i mean did you disagree with the the rankings or something like that or well, did you kind of take a trip down memory lane so to speak yeah, yeah that's what i was gonna say what it does what it did more was was just it was a great it was a great rock for a conversation you know because 
oh yeah, I remember Dead Eye Dick or blah. You know, I did. I haven't thought about that guy in years or whatever. You know, like example I have here. I, like I said, I brought the magazine with me because I'm a fanboy. Number five hundred in the first five hundred was Zeus. Yes. And Bob's bio of Zeus reads, Tiny Lister Jr. is a fine character actor who starred in the 1989 film No Holds Barred, then tried to wrestle. Disastrous results. Still wrestles in quotations, but dot, dot, dot. So you get the you get the, <laughs> the idea. <laughs> I got a little snark in there, huh? Yeah. yeah, a little bit. I didn't think much of his skills, and frankly, nobody else did either. Um that's a little mean, isn't it? And I was even meaner the next year because I remember who, who 92 is. What, you remember who 92 is, number 500? Was, is it Morgus the Maniac? You got it. You nailed it, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> I never even seen that guy, but that description I, in the I, magazine. To call him ridiculous would be an insult to ridiculous wrestlers. I mean, it was just it, it was a bad act. I'm sorry. Morgus, wherever you are, I'm sorry. But uh, he was an East Coast any guy who I think came out in a straight jacket and – I think his mom was the nurse that assisted him to the ring. It, it's worse than it sounded. Okay. Maybe his dad was part of it too. I, I can't, I can't even, you know, but you know, today it would be normal. You know, yeah. He'd be AEW uh, Pacific coast champion at this point. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, just a couple of more questions. Um, the other, like I said, the other show that we do, I do the show Reliving the Extreme with my brother Aaron and then um, Chad Austin, who used to wrestle for ECW and and uh, and Maryland Championship Wrestling. He's our other co-host on the show. And of course, what we do on there is we're actually going week to week. We just literally started at the beginning, wherever WWE has it on Peacock, and we've watched and reviewed each episode of ECW and watching the progression of the company. But I know, and folks, definitely, uh, we'll talk about Bob's podcast for sure at the end, but one of the better episodes that I've enjoyed the most, I love them all, but I love the Todd Gordon episode. So I I know from that that you actually were originally one of the play-by-play guys for ECW. I was, I was more than that. I was the first host of the very first ECW shows in Philadelphia that only – went into the airwaves and vaporized you know it was pre it wasn't cable so it was like and it started out in a little rinky dinky house somewhere and then he found the new uh, i think his name was Filippelli, the second producer who was really a major league guy and then the show got kind of slick and i i um did the first five ten shows that they ever did and i tried my hand at play by play which by the way ended up on wwe network Knocked me down with a feather. <laughs> My color man was Stately Wayne Manor, another, I think he was with Wrestling World at the time. And I thought it sucked when I left the arena that day. And I said, I'm going to stop doing this. You're terrible. Forget it. So, anyway, 30 years later, it ends up on WWE Network. And I'm going, What? It was in, you know, the Hidden Gems section. Yes. yes. What obviously was dubbed from an OVHS tape of, of something called ECW's Bloodiest Bouts or something. And it's me and Wayne did three matches on. I went, that really wasn't bad. <laughs> I had put myself down for all these years saying, I don't have the right resonance in my voice to be a, a you know, a play-by-play guy. And I'd listened to this thing and I had good, good chemistry with Wayne. We were arguing with each other and it sounded natural and real. And the wrestlers were like, it was at a place called the Chestnut Cabaret and they were hitting each other over the head with beer cases. And it was, it was like a big bar place. I was going to ask you, is that is because I I know in the earlier episodes that are on Peacock, 
during the opening video, they say there's stuff that looks like it's from like a sports bar or something that yes, you, you yes. see Jim, you see Jim Neidhart and yeah. yes. Okay. Well, the, the first shows he did were at a place called Michael Jack's in right in center city, Philadelphia, which is owned by Mike Schmidt, the old Phillies third baseman. Okay. And then he moved from there to the chestnut cabaret, which was a much larger nightclub. And I, I don't, I didn't last with him much longer than that. And before I knew it, I don't know how they got into that ECW arena, which is now 2300 arena in Philadelphia. And boy, did they take off fast. Holy smokes. But you know what? Todd, Todd was the right guy. Um, Todd had a real abiding love for old school, but he, he told me on a show, he, he wanted to do Memphis in Philadelphia, but he did Memphis times 60, like take the Tupelo concession stand brawl and, and, put it on steroids, so to speak. That was ECW, even in the beginning. And uh, the rest is history. And Joey Styles, people don't remember, was a, was an intern for PWI for a while. I did and, not know that either. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I believe I was there the day he met Paul Heyman. And the two of them went into our, our conference room and were talking a mile a minute to each other. And I said, man, I can smell cook something cooking in there. This These guys are getting along famously. And before I knew it, Joey was the lead voice of ECW. I mean, it's cool. It was cool to be part of that much history, you know? It, it really yeah. was. Yeah, and actually, I think there is, man, and I would have to go back and check, um, but just from watching the show for the podcast, I really do think there is something. Did you do, even after Joey, even after Joey took over the, the play-by-play, did you do like a guest spot? Yes. Where you did some commentary with him. Okay. Cause I was going to say, I, I, I swore I remembered in one of the shows that we watched for the, for the podcast that you were, you were there with Joey because they do some kind of a spot with the Eagle's nest. And well, uh, um, what happened was, um, pardon me, something happened here. Okay. Let me restart. Yeah. Um, they said, I, I got there. And got to Philadelphia, and I was going to stay overnight in the hotel where they were staying at. And I, I check into the hotel, and he says, Todd says, you're going to have a roommate. I said, who? He said, you're fine now. It's Joey. So we roomed that night. But he says, why don't you, since you're here, why don't you do some color? You used to be on TV. You do some color with me. I said, fine. I don't know if Heyman liked it, but I ended up doing three or four matches on color. So anyway, at the end of one of the matches, Pub- Public Enemy had a match. And they came up into the crow's nest and beat the living crap out of Joey Styles legit. And Joey didn't know it was coming. And I don't know why they did it. I guess it was a rib. But I just, I hauled ass. I, I mean, I got out of there because I didn't want to be next. Who knows? Right. Who knows? It's ECW. And that was ECW by that point, you know, real ECW. So I was like, holy smokes. So, yes, that was the incident in the Crow's Nest with Bob Smith and Joey Styles. So okay. Most of Joey. Oh, my, man, they just they laid him out. What a uh, thing. What wild. A thing. Those guys. <laughs> well, my last question for you, Bob, and this is a question that I, I enjoy asking, especially other wrestling fans, especially when I have someone like your, I, you know, yourself, uh, or I've had Barry Rose on before, just a, a writer or a historian or somebody of that nature um, that I know is as big a wrestling fan as I am. If you could only watch one year 
one promotion, what would it be? Your favorite year slash promotion. Like, you know, that I, if I'm going to only be able to watch this one year of one promotion for the rest of my life, what what is it? What's your... One that I'd seen or not seen? Like, you seen, just pick yeah, history just, or... Yeah, pretty much... Of- it's pretty much your favorite. Or, I mean, you oh, can interpret the question however really, you like. Really, 1980 WWF, Bruno, Larry Zabisco. The greatest angle in the history of the World Wrestling Federation to this day in my mind. I was so entranced by it from the very first moment that Larry Zabisco ignored Bruno trying to get an interview with him outside the ring after a match. I went out and spent $1,000 on a VCR. Remember how expensive they were? Well, you're too young. <laughs> were real expensive when they first came out. And I said, something's, something's cooking here. I got to get this on tape. I, I, could, I could feel it. So I started taping each weekly show leading up to the, you know, the match they had at Shea Stadium. And it was such a realistic, good angle with it, probably the bloodiest moment in WWF TV history when he bashed him over the chair and he's, the blood's running out of his head as he's laying there prone in the ring. All my favorite stars were around at that point from Zabisco to, to him to my favorite wrestler of all time, who I won't mention because it's ridiculous. You you know, my favorite wrestler of all time happens to be the most reviled uh, or one that a lot of fans hold in low esteem. Favorite wrestler of all time because in 1975, I saw him in Albany start a near riot just by sneering. And I said, boy, this guy's got, this guy's got bad guy charisma coming out of his butt. You know, he was... And they were serious. The fans were, were hot. I never. I thought we were going to have a row there. He never said anything. He just sneered. He just walked down the aisle and sneered at everybody. So I was a fan of his for life after that because I like bad guys better, I think. Mm-hmm. But in any event, no, he was still there. He had Tor Kamati. He had Blassie as, as a manager. He had Luel Bano, whatever the tag team champions were. He had the Valiant Brothers. All these guys were – it was really hot. Dusty Rhodes was in and out, you know. Um, I, I just – I was so into it. I spent a thousand dollars on a VCR. So that's got, you know, it just has to be. Um, the, the talking about Sakluna, to be honest with you again, he was, he was a little before my time, but I'll be honest at going, when I go have gone back now through my life, obviously now I've gone back and watched as much as I possibly could. Um, my, my mind, when I was first discovering him, when I first got to see some of the older seventies and eighties stuff, mostly when WWE started releasing that stuff on their DVDs mm-hmm. was I honest to God thought, why wasn't this guy a bigger deal? Why was it? Why is this guy always doing the job? You know? So I saw what I think I saw the same thing in him that you did. He just, he came off to me as a cool, a cool heel. And, but here's the thing. He was a big deal. It was just a long time before those videotapes. He was a championship contender in 66 and 67. He was a world tag team champion. You know, he had such a long career. I think he wrestled from the late 50s to 1984, if you count when he was in Canada as Mike Valentino. Mm-hmm. But but he sees the stuff when he was in his prime. There is a tape on YouTube I'll tell you about 
him and Victor Rivera taking on Antonio Inoki and another Japanese wrestler in Japan in 1967. In one of the falls, Sekluna pins Inoki. Shit. <laughs> it's you can you can look it up. It's on YouTube right now. Um, him and Rick, just type in him and Victor Rivera. It'll come right up. Which goes to show you, he was a big deal at one point. Because believe it or not, in 1966, 67, he was a legitimate six eight six seven six eight. That was towering over everybody in those days. Mm-hmm. Giants weren't quite as big as they are now. Yeah. Oh, he was considered one of the larger wrestlers. Um, and he had a really good, what I call a good bad guy charisma. He would just sneer. He had that look at this countenance, like, you're not worthy of my time, you peasants, you know, as with the cape and everything. And, you know, and the Cicluna King Curtis tag team was the most more vicious than the Road Warriors. Seriously. They would pick up scraps of stuff off the floor and gouge people with them and bash people over the heads with chairs. And in 72, that was, you know, kind of a precursor to hardcore. Seriously. That, so, listen, just because you didn't see it doesn't mean it di- didn't happen, kids. Mm-hmm. And people say, why is he a member of the Hall of Fame? Well, he was a worldwide star for the first half of his career. He just happened to like working for Vince Sr. and continued to, and he lived locally and just continued to work for him like Johnny Rods did. Johnny Rods is as good a wrestler as anybody I've ever seen, and people say he's just a jobber. Get out of here. You know, everybody has a role they don't know about, you know, in wrestling. You know, Sonny Blaze told me that he was an enforcer for the WWF. Like, if a young guy got a little bit too big for his britches, they'd send him to Johnny Rods. So, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, because Johnny Rods could stretch you. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. This is this is why I'm enjoying doing the podcast because I'm learning little tidbits of fun like that. You know, it's it's like uh, the stuff I always suspected is actually turning out to be true. You know, right? Yeah, and you mentioned somebody. You mentioned that it's just because you mentioned him. I another person that as soon as I got access, the, the internet hit, and I was or YouTube or whatever. Another guy that I went back and watched because I was fascinated by him was Curtis Iakea. Yes. So, so because I was because I was a teenager in the '90s, literally my first—I mean, I guess I vividly remembered him as the Wizard, you know, with Kamala mm-hmm. in the WWF. But like then, the goofy Dungeon of Doom, Doom thing, Sullivan, my son, that yes. whole deal, and yeah. So it was like I want to go back and see the bad acidness of this guy. And there, there's not a ton of him out there, but what I can find, I've always, if I can find it, I find it. No, he was as over the top as any heel. I mean, good gosh, I'd put him half a notch below the sheet, to be honest with you. I mean, he was using all kinds of foreign objects. There's, there's a videotape of him stabbing somebody in the back of the head with what looks like a dagger from the, from the seventies, no less. I mean, he he would he was maniacal. You know, he had another head like a roadmap from gigging so much. His his matches were really a, another precursor to hardcore. Even in, against TV jobbers, he would slam them over the head with chairs, and he was out of control. Was the best way to put it. Yeah, and he's as as I've gone back and watched him, he's, he's funny. Moved. He didn't talk all that much in those early years. Yeah, S- somebody discovered he had that big voice you know and he started to become a manager type for kevin sullivan and stuff like that actually he did way better with the championship wrestling from florida when they brought him in to work with Sullivan there in in icw too worked a little better the corny stuff they ended up doing with hogan and wcw you know that was 
wasn't it? Gosh, some of the worst stuff ever. It's funny because you look and it's like there's there's talent there. Look at all this talent, but look how we're using it. Well, you know, I had two stints in WCW magazine, and I left Colin at one point because I remember it was a Monday night watching, I guess it was Nitro, and it was Hogan and some other fossil against Kevin Sullivan and Arn Anderson, and they were just going through the motions. And I said to myself, this is actually funny. I said to myself, this this ain't going nowhere. It's played. It's done. I think so I think the person you're I think the person you're referring to is probably that team with Hogan is probably Brutus Beefcake when he was the booty man. Yeah. So I call Colin. <laughs> and I go. I I I don't want to do this anymore. He says, Why? I said the product. Ugh. About less than a month later, Scott Hall walked in the ring. Good timing, Bob. <laughs> the world changed <laughs> in in one instant. You know, and it was like, holy smokes. But I, you know, I ended up coming back anyway. Colin called me out of the blue, said, You sure you don't want to write some more? And I said, Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Colin and Colin was great. I, I'd like to know what he's doing now. He's in Florida somewhere, but uh, he did the best he could with the wonderful, you know, brain trust at WCW who would fight you no matter what you wanted to do in your magazine. It was like, it was really hard because you'd have to get clearances from like five different people in Atlanta and they were never there. You know what I'm saying? It was mm -hmm. just very hard and frustrating thing to put together. And um, he did, he did a really good job with what he was given. You know, if the stars wouldn't have aligned and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall wouldn't have um, come in and Hulk Hogan wouldn't have agreed to turn heel. Eric Bischoff's idea for the next big thing was Glacier. And yes. Mortis and Wrath. That was the Mortal Kombat thing was going to be the next big thing in wrestling, folks. So good no thing God. the stars aligned for WCW. Well, no kidding, but you know, you remember uh, Bad Blood and Ugh. and Johnny B. Bad and although Johnny B. Bad is the only one that worked. That that worked. Mark Merrill just took that character and ran with it. But all the others, um what was Matt Bourne's name? Big Josh. Um, big Josh, yeah. And, and just the firebreaker chip. I mean, it just, it got the thing to forget. I mean, it got so bad for a while. I mean, beyond parody bad. I, you know, look, you can't, this is why to this day I said, don't let non wrestling people into wrestling. And now all these years have passed and everybody's a non wrestling person that's in wrestling and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, it's. I find it very hard to cotton to a lot of what goes on today. I won't even mention any leagues here because you don't have a lot of time, but I, I am very disillusioned with what they're putting out for the most part. I think WWE's had a really good couple of months lately, but other than that, I, I don't point at anything that I really am crazy about. For the first time in my life, I'm missing wrestling on television, not even tuning in. I've never been that way. But you know, you see the great, you see the gray chin here, hairs here. They don't want me. They don't want me watching. They don't care about me, even though I've watched my whole life. They want Becky, who's eighteen, and Timmy, who's twenty. Yeah. And they want them to order the championship titles, and you know, come and spend six hundred eighty-one dollars for ringside seat for WrestleMania. That's what they want. Do I blame them? No. I just don't want to be part of it. Yeah, and I, 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 I find myself. Especially, probably, I'd say within the last 10 years, unfortunately, other than 
a lot of times I'll watch a whole pay-per-view. Um, but the weekly, the week-to-week television, if I watch, I find myself fast-forwarding through 70% of it to get to what I want to see. And I tell my wife all the time, I just ain't the wrestling fan I used to be. Like, I want to get, I want to, I want to see what happened on Raw, but I want to watch it fast enough so I can go back and watch something from 1993 instead. You know, I just, it's just the way it is. They, I guess it's that expression. They don't make new music for old people, (laughs) you know, and maybe that's the way it is with wrestling. Maybe they just don't make wrestling for, because I'm 44 now. So 40 Mm -hmm. When I hit about 40, I started started to, to diminish on me. But I hear you. Well, I still think somebody should be brave. Oh, but here's here's another point about that. Is there anything unfunnier than wrestling comedy? No. Everything they try to be funny, it's awful. Am I right or wrong? That's no, part right. of it. Secondly is there's got to be a promoter out there somewhere who was brave enough to just pit two people in a ring tone it down like it used to be, do interviews outside the ring in a sports-type manner, right? Um, I'm not saying it has to be, you know, straight-laced and looking like AAU wrestling, but just make the people look a little more normal and not so flashy. And wrestling is so overproduced now. I mean, the arenas look like you're trapped inside a PlayStation 5, you know? It's just the noise and tumult and fireworks and Everything is loud. Everything is greatest. The announcers are screaming. The music is loud. And you want to pull your hair out after watching it for 45 minutes. Not to mention wrestlers that take 20 minutes to walk to the ring and other uh, things that have changed. When I started wrestling, when the uh, WWF would come on with the match, the, oppo- the opponents would already be in the ring. They'd make a ring announcement. Ding, ding, ding. And you'd be off to the races. Boy, do I miss that, too. I just do. Um, it, it's over. Everything is hype to the point of give me a break. Give my ears and mind a break. You know, everything, you know what I mean? It's like the way records are mixed these days. Everything is high. You know, everything's mixed for headphones now as opposed to uh, stereo. Yes. And it's like it's grating on the nerves after a while. All that noise tumult kind of makes you sick. And wrestling shouldn't, wrestling, wrestling shouldn't look as slick and sanitized as the. No. Wrestling was best when they had a hard edge to it. And actually, and to, to be honest, I was talking to somebody. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was talking oh, no. to somebody. And, and this is the point. Wrestling was better when it wasn't for everybody, when they weren't courting everybody. Remember when it was kind of like a secret that you and your friends had that you wouldn't yeah. talk about in school, but you would all go to the matches? You know what I mean? It was different. The whole vibe of it was different back then. It was like the secret thing. It's like your stash of Playboy magazines in your bedroom. You know, you didn't tell people about it, but you really enjoyed it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the, actually, I was going to say, um, to me, the most enjoyable, the most enjoy, and, and again, I watch the new stuff. I keep up, I guess. But the most, in, like, the most fun I have watching a wrestling show now is I actually watch uh, OVW on YouTube. Um, Al Snow is doing a great job with OVW and they put their show on YouTube every single week. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's indie. So they have some indie riffic guys or whatever, but it's just, it's the closest thing to wrestling that's out there that I, I enjoy it. You just gave me a tip because I had no earthly idea that OVW was on YouTube because I'm the yeah. biggest Al Snow fan there is. I think he's teaching these guys to do it the right way. If you've ever heard talk about you know wrestlers protecting themselves and being safe in the ring, we need more of that. Yes. 
and uh, Al is a proponent. So now I know what I'm doing when I go home after this taping. I think I'm going to uh, tune in because it's like, that sounds interesting. Thank you yeah. for that tip, man. I didn't even know that. I yes, knew it was sir. on somewhere. I didn't know it was YouTube. There are hundreds. Yeah, they have hundreds of episodes of their TV on YouTube. So Too good, man. Well, and that's my other saving grace, too. I've talked about it in my podcast. Guys like uh, Dave Dynasty and Chris P. Lettuce, who was Armstrong Alley on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of obscure old school wrestling. I mean, it's just fantastic, yeah. you know? You know, every federation you can name. Chris P. Lettuce is like a hero, and so is Dave. Where they came up with these tapes, I have no earthly idea. How the heck did you have five years worth of Bruiser Bedlam tapes? He, Dave went out and got the original cartridges that they used – in broadcast, he's trying to digitize them now. These guys are serious about digging up the old stuff, and it is heavenly. I'm talent great. Well, I guess on that note, I will uh, let I will let my prisoner, Mr. Bob Smith, free for the evening. But Bob, I want to really, really so thank you. go on and on because it's it's like. Um, you get me started on the old school stuff and I just, I can't shut it off. You know why? Because I, I'm trying to impart the love that we all had when we were kids. Why let that feeling go? I mean, we can, we can, I guess we can rely on each other for information. And this is why I like going on other podcasts and have, uh, other podcasts has come on mine. You're going to be in my podcast too, by the way, whether you like it or not. So, you know, this is part of the deal now. So you got to come on, but, but seriously, um, there's a community out there of disaffected, older wrestling fans. I intend to ex exploit this. And, and, and Brian Solomon does, and you do, and a bunch of other people. And that's great because it's like, we're, you know, we want to buy tickets too. We would go to the arena if there's something to watch, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know what to say other than uh, this year we've, we've lost some wrestlers and Jerry Jarrett really got to me when he died because it was like the old school guys, that knew the psychology are waning by the day. There's less of them as the weeks go by. You, you know, you read the obits and stuff. It's been a bad year for it too. So when they leave us, there's, that's one less educational voice to teach today's wrestlers what worked for 50 years. It's going to be up to the people who follow them like you and me to let people know about them and, 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 and remind people that wrestling used to be different. And good and we really enjoyed it whether a young person would look at a match from 1977 and think it was good or they're just a bunch of guys standing around the ring who knows but I, I just want to educate people to the difference and let them make their own minds up whether they'd like to pursue old school stuff or to say yeah, it's a bunch of old men what do they know you know it's up to them yeah. but as far as you know, like when you listen did you have a good time talking to me absolutely well, i absolutely. had a good time talking to you this is what it's about Let's have some fun. Uh, life is short. I'm getting old too. So yeah. it's like I, I intend to have as much fun with this as I can to now to whenever I stop doing the podcast. So it's, you know, and I've been having a blast, man. I've reconnected with people I haven't seen for 30 years. So how can I complain? This is fun. And speaking of that, um, to, as we as we wrap here, do you want to go ahead and let everybody know about your podcast, where they can find it, where they can find you on social media? I'm sure you have more listeners than I do, but you might get some of my listeners out of this. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't bet on that. Um, <laughs> it is called the Outdated Wrestling Hour. The motto of the show is all new, all old. And uh, 
We are available, I am proud to say, if you can name a podcast app, we're there. All of them. Some that even I didn't hear of and have no idea how it ended up there. The obscure ones like Refonic and Podbay and stuff like that. We're also on Spotify and Amazon and Audible. And think of a pocket. We're on Samsung News, which is which comes free with your Samsung phone. But there's a podcast section in there. And we're on there too. If you can, if you have a podcast app, chances are it's there. I can't think of a single one that we're not on. So I think my company's done a really good job getting it out and disseminated. Um, if you want to find me, uh, I have a Gmail address, which is the same as the show, outdatedwrestling at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook as Bob Smith. You'll see me singing with BB King. I don't know if I, I don't talk about this on the podcast a lot, but I was a blues singer for 15 years and traveled the whole country. So uh, you can see me singing with BB King on the face of the Facebook page. Just look for Bob Smith. Look for me and BB King. Um, where else? Where else should I send you? We have a website where you can hear all the shows. It's just called outdatedwrestlinghour.buzzsprout.com. All the shows are there. If you know, if I think that's enough. It's, it's mainly where I'm at. And because right. um, how did I meet you? Facebook? Uh, actually, I think Facebook I link up a little bit. Yeah, actually, I think we actually met through um, a resi because I was on a resi show with you for an episode. And then we linked up on Facebook after that. You were really? Yeah, I was one of the patrons. I don't remember this. I was one of the patrons, so I got to Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So why weren't you on the main show? You should have been on the main show. <laughs> what? What gives? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I, I don't want to open a can of worms. I have enough worms in that can anyway, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even pursue it. But um listen, I'm I, I say it every week. If I get no more successful than I'm right now, I'm happy because talking with you and people like you, I feel 50 years younger. I'm telling you, I feel it's, it's just so, so good to go back and, and relive the stuff you really enjoy. Like you're talking about Memphis and stuff like that. I mean, every time I talk about my trip there, it's just, it's like a tonic, you know, it feels really mm -hmm. good. So thank you for allowing me to do that. I really appreciate it. Yes. And thank you for joining me. And like we said, check out Bob's podcast, The Outdated Wrestling Hour, which I'm now booked for. Yeah, there we go. And uh, yes, you are. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining me. And I, I just want to say, to be part of your 200th show, honestly, I am. I feel privileged, and I've been binging on it, gang. Ever since I knew I got this this booking, I've been listening back through. A, there's some great shows. You got to hear the ones that they did about the Hall of Shame and the worst tag teams. This show is a lot of fun, and I really I'm glad to be on it. And tell the other people on the show that I said hi because they're all doing a fantastic job, and uh, I recommend it wholeheartedly to everybody that listens. I take that as high praise. Thank you, Bob. And there you have it, everybody. My conversation from the 200th episode of the We Can't Wrestle podcast with Bob Smith, former managing editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine. I want to thank Bob once again for taking the time to sit down with me. And for those of you that don't listen to the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Uh, I would, I would encourage you to. We do a lot of great stuff on there. Some weeks it's historical, some weeks it's comedic, but it's always fun. 
the We Can't Wrestle podcast, available also here on the WNR Podcast Network. That being said, I'm going to sign off now, and we will continue next week back into our journey through the history of ECW, and I will see everybody next week. Have a great one.